We are in Mark's Gospel in Mark chapter 11 and in Mark chapter 12, and we're in a section now as we're in the final days of Jesus' life. This is the final week. And the Gospel of Mark is posing to us a question essentially why would people reject Jesus? And you might be able to come with a lot of answers to that question. But perhaps it's a little bit more confounding when you put it in terms of where Mark is at, where he is showing us that these are people who are supposed to love God and know the scriptures. Why are they rejecting Jesus? He is coming to his own. He has come to Jerusalem. He has announced himself as the king riding in on the donkey. He has come into the temple courts. He is showing himself to be exactly as what the Old Testament prophets had declared. He has come and he has shut down the the temple for one day. He has overturned the money changing tables and stopped the buying and selling of goods. We even see him acting as a prophet and cursing a fig tree, a declaration against Israel because of its fruitlessness. And now we're going to notice in this picture here that instead of people responding and asking questions in a way that they would come to follow Jesus, they are asking questions in a way that show their rejection. And in this morning's lesson, we're going to notice one reason why people who seemingly would be followers of God choose to reject Jesus. As was just read for us in Mark chapter 11, verses 27 through 33, you notice in verse 27 that Jesus comes back into the temple. The last time he walked into the temple, he shut the place down. That was in this earlier in this chapter. And you can imagine as Jesus then comes in toward the temple, the quick response of the leaders as he approaches. So as though the chief priests and the scribes and the elders all immediately come to him. And they ask him, by what authority are you doing these things? And what they're referring to is what Jesus has said and done these past couple of days. Jesus has declared, remember, that they were supposed to be a house of prayer. Rather than being a house of prayer for all the nations and bringing in people to God, they are a den of robbers, an imagery of their wickedness. And by quoting Jeremiah 7, the implication that this temple is going to be destroyed just like it was in Jeremiah's day. And so in declaring their unfruitfulness and their uncleanness in shutting the temple down because God is not there with them, they now come to Jesus and say, essentially, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to say those things and teach those things? To say this temple is going to be destroyed? To shut down the temple courts? Who exactly do you think you are? By what authority are you doing these things? Verse 28. Or who gave you this authority to do them? Essentially, how dare you? How dare you think that you could do something like this? Who do you think you are? Where's your authority for this? And you'll notice that Jesus then turns and says, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, it's important to note Jesus is not being a jerk here. I mean, like, well, I'm just not going to answer you. And only if you can figure out a way to answer my riddle will I now answer yours. That's not what he's doing here. 
The reason why he's going to ask a question is because this question is going to answer their question. If they will answer the question he is about to pose to them, it will save them a whole kind of problems about understanding exactly who Jesus is. So rather than just simply directly answering it, he addresses a question to them about the authority of John. In verse 20, in verse 30. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Give me an answer. (laughs) Answer me this. Was John's authority from God or not? And the reason why this will answer everything about what these chief priests and scribes and elders are asking is because if they answer that John is really sent from God, think about what John had been proclaiming. He had proclaimed at the very beginning of this book the need for repentance, a baptism for repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And if there needs to be repentance, what does that imply? <laughs> You are a bunch of sinners, which is what Jesus is saying by calling them a den of thieves. You have in Matthew's gospel here that you have John basically saying those very things, brood of vipers who warned you of the wrath to come. He, John's message to Jerusalem and to the leaders was the very same message that Jesus is proclaiming. And not only was John's message a message of repentance, the people were wicked and needed to turn away before the arrival of the Christ. Remember what else John ran around saying. Somebody greater than me is on the doorstep. The kingdom of heaven is at hand and the king is at hand. And he was coming in such a way that I'm not even worthy to bend down And unfasten his sandals. And so John, if you say John's authority was from God, then all you have to say is listen to John. Because John's proclaimed the same message and pointed to Jesus. That's what Mark 1 was all about. That you had this parallel between John and Jesus. However... If you say that John is not sent from God, you really have a problem. And Mark identifies that problem here in verse 32. They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. You find even in the other account statements being made that they would have probably stoned the leaders and killed them if they had said that John was not from God. Everybody knew John was from God. He was a prophet like none other. If you didn't see Elijah in John, you weren't looking very well. Everybody recognized John to be a prophet of God. So they're in a pickle here. If we say... That John's authority was from God. Jesus just simply goes, great. That answers your question by what authority I do these things. Because John has said everything about me. And if you say the authority is not from God that John had. To deny him straight out as a prophet. Will discredit their leadership completely throughout all of Jerusalem. So what are you going to do? Verse 33. 
And they answered Jesus, We do not know. Don't you love it when your kids give you that answer? Why'd you do I don't know. What you see here is absolutely fascinating. For them to say, we do not know, is a revealing of a dishonest heart. This is what Mark is going to put forward for us as why these leaders are rejecting Jesus. They are refusing to allow what Jesus has said to actually hit their hearts. They know what Jesus has said. They know the point that Jesus is making. And they know that that convicts them. And they are going to refuse to deal with that consequence. So rather than accepting what Jesus does right there. They deflect it. Dishonest hearts. We do not know. Because what they're doing is they've started with a conclusion, haven't they? They've started with the conclusion that Jesus is not from God. Therefore, it doesn't matter what he says. It doesn't matter what he does. He can't be from God. It doesn't matter that he heals a blind man and they put the blind man through the inquisition and they still refuse to see that this man had been healed by Jesus. Can't be. Or even that Lazarus would be raised from the dead. That can't be possible. And the things that he must be doing cannot be from God. It must be from the devil. Because you're starting with a conclusion. You're starting with the conclusion that Jesus clearly can't be from God. Therefore, anything he says and anything he does cannot be true. This is the essence of a dishonest heart. They would rather be right than actually accept the truth. That's what's happening right here. Jesus has them beautifully with this question. Let's talk about John. (laughs) Let's answer that question. We are not going to answer that question. We refuse to answer. We don't know the answer if John was from God or not. Are you serious? (laughs) You have no conclusion to that whatsoever. You haven't thought about that all these years and have no idea what to think of John. It is dishonesty. And the reason for the dishonest heart is because you don't like the message. And that's why Jesus then says, I'm not going to answer your question. You don't like the message. You don't like what's being told to you. You don't like what's being said. And therefore you refuse to answer. And I want us to consider and reflect for a moment. That it is very easy to read this scene and think, wow. How close-minded, closed-eared, hard-hearted can you possibly be? I mean, how stubborn can you be that you would do something like that? It is easy to point the finger at the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. How, How dare they have hearts like that? But please think about how easy it is. In the face of truth, we reject it because we don't like the message. We don't like what's being said. We don't agree. 
does not conform to our values, our comforts, our likes, our desires. We do not like it. You see, it's very easy to come along and go, oh yeah, dishonest hearts. That's terrible. Shame, shame, dishonest hearts. But that is a very easy category to be in. It is very easy to be dishonest with the Word of God. And to conform it and bend it in such a way so that we are right rather than it cutting our hearts as it ought. That's where these leaders are. That's exactly where they're at. And I think it's important to see why Jesus then refuses to answer the question. Again, Jesus is not being petty. This is not, you know, tit for tat. Oh, well, you won't answer mine. I will not answer yours. You know, that kind of thing. No, the reality is... You can't discuss spiritual things with people who have dishonest hearts. There's no point. This conversation is going to go nowhere if Jesus now attempts to explain His authority from God. They don't care. They are dishonest. And there's no reason to discuss it. There's nothing further to say. And I think it's important to see that that's how Jesus handles that. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. We can't have an honest discussion. If you will not be honest with the Word of God, if you will not be honest with what it says, there can't be a discussion. There's nowhere to go. Dishonest hearts get nowhere. And that's why you see the results of what is played out in these final days in Jesus' life. They're not interested in hearing. They're not interested in seeing. Their minds are made up. Their hearts are stationary now. And they are not going to listen because they are dishonest. To show the truth of that, notice the parable. I hate the chapter break. First word, and. And they began to spe- he began to speak to them in parables. So, here we are. There's... Th- I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do these things, but I am going to tell you a story. (laughs) Let me tell you a story about something. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for a wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went to another country. Now we need to stop there a minute because our minds are probably not doing what their minds would have done as soon as Jesus started telling this parable. We noted last week when we studied the fig tree, we talked about that, that same thing with vines and vineyards in scriptures. When you spoke of vines and vineyards and fig trees, those were always symbols, emblematic of the nation of Israel. Perhaps one of the closest connections of that is in Isaiah chapter 5. And I'd like for you to notice the massive similarities between the story Jesus begins and the story that Isaiah tells about a vineyard that God had done back in his day. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 1. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewn out a wine vat. If I had space on there, as Isaiah goes, there's going to be a looking for fruit and coming to see for fruit. And it's just a wild, degenerate vine that does not produce good fruit. And did you see how Jesus started his parable? A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for a wine press and built a tower. 
Isaiah 5 is exploding right here. You're just about quoting the beginning of Isaiah 5. You are telling Israel's history again. If somebody says, all right, I've got a vineyard and there was a fence put around in a wine press and built a tower and it was all carefully laid out and made. That's Israel's story. That's what Isaiah had identified as well as other prophets. So this is not just a random story. Oh, let me tell you a story about some vines in a vineyard. Immediately, you are connecting to the story of Israel. Now look at what happens. Verse 2. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. This is absolutely reasonable. Here is an owner of a vineyard. He has tenants in the vineyard who are to be taking care of it. They are growing the vineyard. They are uh, keeping track of the fruit that is coming in. They are harvesting the fruit. The owner now sends a servant to go get some of the fruit. Let's go see the fruit that's been born when the season comes. That's what verse 2 describes. Here is the owner. He sends a servant to the tenants to get some of the fruit of the vineyard. Listen to what happens. Verse 3, and they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. The owner sends a messenger and the messenger says the owner wants some of the fruit. And the people in the vineyard take the servant and they beat him and send him away empty-handed. What would you expect of the owner on that one? Verse 4. And he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. Messenger 2 comes. Shameful treatment also. Verse 5. And he sent another, and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. So the owner of the vineyard keeps sending messengers saying, it's time for the fruit. Messenger, messenger, messenger. Messenger one comes, they beat him and send him away empty-handed. Messenger two comes, they treat him shamefully and send him away. Messenger three comes, they kill him. Messenger four comes, more beatings. Messenger five, more beatings. Another messenger, kill him. Another messenger, kill him, beat him, kill him, beat him. This is simply a story of the prophets of Israel. God sent prophets to Israel looking for fruit. And how did Israel treat every single one of God's prophets? Some were persecuted and some were killed. Over and over again, God would send prophets. Prophets that are even listed in your Bibles by name and some not. And God would send messenger after messenger, and Israel responded with shameful mistreatment, beating, and killings. That moment, I just ask you, what do you think the owner would do there? <clears throat> Look at verse 6. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. 
So God has sent prophet after prophet, messenger after messenger, and the response of the owner is, this will surely cause remorse and the right response out of my tenants. I will send my beloved son. They will surely listen to him. You would imagine maybe they're looking at this and going, well, the messengers, sure, they carry authority. But as we've studied in the book of Hebrews, if you are a son, you are of equal nature and of equal authority and equal in all things in terms of privilege, power, and might. Surely they're going to respect the son. The son now arrives on the scene. Verse 7. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. See, they understand who he is. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. I want you to notice the thinking of those who are in the vineyard. We can take this for ourselves. This is our land. This is our fruit. This is our stuff. This isn't the owner's. This is ours. We will do with it as we want. We will do as we please. Don't send your messengers. Don't send your son. I don't care what you have to say. It's our place and we will seize it for ourselves and we will do as we wish. That's their response. Verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? At this point now, I've asked you all throughout this, what would you do as the owner? (laughs) If the owner has sent servant after servant after servant, and there's been zero fruit that's been given back, that the servants have been beaten, the servants have been mistreated and shamefully treated as thus, and they've been killed even, and then you send the son, and they conspire against the son, kill him and cast him out of the vineyard. A shameful death, cast out of the vineyard. Jesus just asked a simple question at the end of this. What would the owner do? (laughs) Verse 9. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. There was nobody who would disagree with that answer. (laughs) After sending servant, 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 and son, no one is going to look at that and go, wow, the owner has really got a fast trigger on that. (laughs) Seems a little edgy. No. He sent multiple servants and a son, and they were all beaten or killed. What's he going to do? Of course he's going to cast out the tenants. Of course he's going to destroy those miserable wretches and give the vineyard to another. That's an obvious conclusion. Now we mentioned at the beginning of this, this is a story of Israel. When you speak of a vineyard, this is Israel's story. The prophets have been sent. Jesus is the son. Here he has come. And notice he's already identifying what's about to happen. He's already laid it out. Uh, I'm going to also be shamefully mistreated and I'm going to be killed and cast out of the vineyard. He's already declaring exactly what's in their hearts. He's already warning them. Can you imagine if somebody could come along and tell you, I know what's in your heart and here's what you're trying to do. And you wouldn't be moved by that. 
I mean, if somebody could come up to you and say, I know everything you're going to do this afternoon, would you not be astounded by that? And you go, hey, think about that for a minute. You are something. <laughs> Here is Jesus going, and then here's what's going to happen next. Now the sun comes, and you're going to kill him and throw him out. And now he proves his point with a quotation, verse 10. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected have become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He quotes from Psalm 118. Two things that are fascinating about that. The message, which we'll talk about in a minute, but its location is interesting. That is just a couple of sentences before the words of the people who were following Jesus on the way to Jerusalem were proclaiming. So a couple verses later, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Just three verses earlier are these words, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in their eyes. Now think about what that prophecy is saying. Why would a builder set a a stone aside and not use it? It's considered inadequate, right? There's something flawed, something wrong, either not square enough, not big enough, whatever it is about the stone. The reason you don't use that stone is because there's something wrong with it. For our house, we've laid tile before, got chipped tile. Nope, set that one aside, not going to use that one. You lay wood floor in your house, you get a piece, you look at that and go, that doesn't look like all the other pieces. You set it aside. You don't use it. There's something defective. There's something wrong. That's what the prophecy is saying. They are going to say, this one is inadequate. There's something wrong. We reject it. And what is God going to do? Make it the most important piece. The builders identify this stone as completely inadequate and useless for the building. And God comes and says, no, that's actually the best piece there is. We can build the whole structure around that one stone. This is the whole message of what's about to take place. Despite these people's rejection and despite the death that he is going to observe with Jesus just just said is going to happen. What are they going to do to the son? Kill him and throw him out of the vineyard. He's just told them what they're about to do. Guess what's going to happen? God is going to raise Jesus up to be the cornerstone of the new temple and it's going to amaze the world. That's the prophecy of verse 11. This is the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. It's going to change everything. Now, what would you suppose to be the response to that? Here you hit him and go, okay, I'm not going to tell you by what authority I'm doing these things because you're being dishonest. You won't even answer my question. You won't even answer if John's authority is from God or not. And I'm going to tell you a parable. And you know this parable because it's the parable of Isaiah about a vineyard that's lacking fruit and how the tenants handled the servants that came. And they knew that. You have Jesus in talking about those leaders in that day saying, 
how they would have never treated the prophets like their ancestors did. (laughs) Oh, really? (laughs) And this is what you're going to do to the son. Notice the result in verse 12. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went their way. Well, they got the message. Loud and clear what Jesus was saying. What's their response? Let's get him. (laughs) Seemed to miss the idea of what the parable was saying. (laughs) But they got the message. Oh, you're telling that against us. You're stating something about us. Why do they want to arrest him? They don't like the message. They don't like the message. If Jesus had come in and given them a pat on the back with rainbows and unicorns and pillows and yay, you guys are doing so great. God loves you so much. Everything is hunky-dory good. Yay, rah, rah. They would have loved him. Let's throw out these miserable Romans. They would have loved him. Why do they want to kill him? Why do they want him arrested? Why do they want to destroy him? Dishonest hearts. They do not like the message. To state this a little strongly, they don't like that their sin was exposed. Jesus just flat out calls them out. I know what is in your heart and what you're about to do to me. I know exactly what's going to happen. Jesus has been telling his disciples over and over again what will happen when they come to Jerusalem. Over and over again he said it. Now he tells a parable to the ones who are about to do it. And tells them you're going to take the son and you're going to kill him and cast him out. And they perceived that He was saying this against them. They didn't like it. I think it is so interesting that, friends, these are the people who supposedly loved God. It's easy to paint this description upon people where we say, well, they don't love God. They don't care. They're terrible, miserable wretches, and they don't think about those kinds of things. It's not who we have here. We have people who know Scripture. Friends, they are chief priests. They are the elders of the group. They are the scribes, the copiers of the law. (coughs) These are the people who were upheld as the knowledgeable, the religious, the righteous. The ones who would surely be the followers of God. But they don't honestly hear the message. It didn't matter all the knowledge they had. It didn't matter that they could have so much of it memorized. Think about if you kept writing a book of the Bible over and over and over again for your job. How quickly you could memorize that. The scribes knew the law. It didn't matter. Dishonest hearts with the message. 
They didn't like the message. They didn't like what was being said. They didn't like what was being told to them. And so that is why they are rejecting Jesus. I think it is so important as we begin to end the lesson to be very aware of a warning about dishonest hearts. It is so important that every day we are sincere and careful about our spiritual condition. To truly consider, are we deflecting, dodging any of God's messages, any of God's words, because we don't like the message? That's the thrust of what Jesus is doing right here. Is there something that Jesus says that we don't like? Because they do not like what Jesus is saying. And that is what is triggering this whole thing. What Jesus is saying about the temple, they don't like. What Jesus says about the leadership, they do not like. And Jesus, by the way, is not just off on the rails making random declarations. Think about how he quotes scripture to prove his point. The builders have rejected this stone. That's what God said was going to happen. That's you. That's what Jesus is doing right there. This is you. Here's your chance of repentance. But the Lord is going to make the stone the cornerstone. It's the Lord's doing. And it is a marvelous thing in our eyes. Here's your chance. Don't reject the message. Here's your opportunity. Listen to what God is saying. Don't reject the message because you don't like it. Don't reject it because it's not comfortable. That's what they're doing. This is not comfortable. You are saying we are bad leaders. We are saying that. What's John running around saying before he dies? Repent. We're not in a position to run around in our lives going high fives. We're all doing okay and we are great. Don't tell me about God's word. I've been baptized. We're great. High fives all around. Just come here together. We're good. That's what they're doing. And they missed it. They didn't let God's word penetrate. And remember what the message of the parable is all about is God is looking for fruit. God is looking for fruit out of His vineyard. How often the Scriptures speak of the need for us to be fruit bearers for God. I'll use just one that you know very well, like Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If you belong to Jesus, this is the fruit that exists. And you've cut off the works of the flesh. But the Word of God just centers right in and zeroes into our hearts. And we need to consider, as we've seen in these past couple of lessons in the Gospel of Mark, is there something that we need to cut out of our lives that is causing us to sin, but we don't like that message? 
Don't tell me to stop doing X, Y, and Z. I like doing X, Y, and Z. How dare you? That's what they're telling Jesus. Don't tell us this stuff. And Jesus says, well, what's left to have happen but judgment? If we don't respond to what God is telling us, what has God left to do? He's given us every chance. Think about where we're at. Servant after servant and the son and the apostles, more servants. And what shall God do if we tell him, I don't want to listen to the message? (coughs) Just as you read in the parable, all of us would raise our hand and say judgment is right. Yes, it is. Judgment is right. Because we're telling God, I don't want to change. I don't care. Please take inventory of your life this morning. What are we doing that would be in defiance of what God says? How are we not bearing fruit? Sometimes it's the simple things. How are we doing with anger, holding grudges, bitterness? How are we doing with not being conformed to the world? but being transformed by the renewing of our minds. How are we doing in terms of putting others ahead of ourselves? Not think highly of yourself. How are we doing with that? How are we doing when it comes to children obey your parents? How are we doing as parents raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? How are we doing husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her? Wives, Submit and respect your husbands. There's all kinds of things all over the place we can point to that we take evaluation of every aspect of our lives. How we're relating in the home, how we're relating here one another, how we relate to our neighbors, how we relate on the job, everywhere. Is there any part of God's message that what we are ultimately doing is we are telling God, I don't like that. I'm not going to change there. I'm good on these ones. Let's talk about those. We'll all high-five these. You know, Didn't steal today. Yep, high-fives all around. We're all good. We like to pick on the things that we're all good at. But don't talk to me about where my failures are. And that's exactly where God wants to talk to us. He's trying to save souls. He's trying to bring us home. He desires for us to repent. And I encourage us to consider our situation then this morning. Where are you with God? Should be honest with the evaluation. Dishonest hearts are why people reject Jesus. They don't think they're rejecting Jesus. I would suppose that the hundred and some people we have in the room right now, everybody in here would say, we don't reject Jesus. Yeah, okay, we're good. But is there some area in our life that we really are? some area where we're saying, but not that. I do not listen to that command. I will not listen to that declaration. I will not make that change. I will not live my life that way. I will not be holy in that regard. Will you repent of that? Turn away from that sin. Confess it to God. And get right with God before it's too late. Get rid of that sin. Deal with it before it's too late. If you're not a Christian... Will you become a child of His today? 
you look at your life and you realize all of this is a mess. This life is not what it's all about. It is about a life of, for serving God and loving God. And you're ready to make that change to live for Him and serve Him with all of your heart. Be immersed in water today for the forgiveness of your sins. How can we help you? Won't you come while we stand in one